Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Moving to Live is a podcast about movement. We believe movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. Our goal is to break down the knowledge silos by interviewing different movement professionals. A big shout out to Eric Malzone for the intro of today's guest. Today's guest is Sean Pastuch. He is the owner and founder of Active Life, and he's going to tell us what that's about, and we're going to learn about his background and why he looks at the importance of people not necessarily getting locked up in silos. And he's got a really interesting story. I hope he shares with us during the interview about how he emailed Dr. Stuart McGill when he was still a student. So Dr. Pastuch, thank you for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. My pleasure, Ben. I appreciate you having me on. My question I always like to ask uh, Moving to Live guests first is you're stuck in an elevator, you've got an Active Life t-shirt on, or you're carrying a notepad with an Active Life logo, and somebody says, who are you and what the heck do you do? What's your elevator talk? Yeah, so my first question, well, actually, I wouldn't have a question. Somebody asked me, who am I and what do I do? I would explain to them that I own a company that strives to humanize the doctor, professionalize the coach, and empower the individual. We do that through education, personal ownership, and execution. And they would ask me how, what that means and how we do it. And then we would need to get off the elevator and continue talking. But they would understand that we help people get out of pain without going to the doctor or missing the gym. And we teach doctors and coaches how to do that for their patients and clients when it's within their scope before they get off the elevator. And I know we'll get into that more in the second part of the interview. I know by training, you're a chiropractor, but most people, when they're growing up, have these grandiose ideas of what they're going to be. I still remember thinking at one point in time, I was going to be a professional basketball player, a professional soccer player, until I actually saw really good basketball players when I was in seventh or eighth grade and quickly realized, yeah, you know, I'm not that good, especially Mm -hmm. as a six foot or six one power forward. So growing up, 
I'm kind of curious, were you an active kid? Because clearly your company values movement or were you somebody who found movement maybe in high school, college, or even after college? I was extremely active. So I played baseball, I played basketball, I ran cross country and I wrestled. And I would play any pickup sport with anybody at any time on any day. I hated soccer, hated soccer because my best friends who were my best athlete friends would play soccer in the fall instead of playing baseball with me. So our team was never as good as it otherwise could be. And that pissed me off. But I was always into all kinds of sports growing up. And my background, my primary education is actually in personal training. I got stumped at helping my clients at a certain point and decided this isn't going to cut it. What else can I do? And my father was a chiropractor, my first mentor, you know, the guy I wanted to be the most like growing up. And I decided I'm going to do this. I, went, I used to go to the physical therapy suite at the gym I worked at all the time and say, hey, I have a client who has this problem. What should I do? And they'd be like, oh, um, work around it. If this hurts, don't do it. If this hurts, don't do it. I'm like, oh, yeah, great. That's, that's earth shattering. Thank you for that. So I decided that that frustrated me, went to chiropractic school, got my education, came out, and ultimately ended up blending the worlds. And I know I've talked to a number of physical therapists and chiropractors and osteopaths and some of the things that all three professions or all three educations do are very, very similar. Why did you decide on chiropractic? Was it because your dad was a chiropractor or because you thought that would give you more power at that point in time than as a physical therapist? Or what was the reason? It's a great question. There, I think there were two strong reasons why. One is because I actually had some personal training clients who were really high-powered medical doctors. And they were medical doctors on Long Island in the most prestigious hospital, in the most prestigious wing, in the most prestigious role. And to a man, they told me, do not become a chiropractor. I understand you don't have the grades to get into medical school, but I know people on the admission board and I promise you when you apply, I will get you in. Two separate clients told me this without ever talking to or knowing each other. One was a urologist in private practice who had rounds at Northwell Health, formerly known as North Shore LIJ, that's the hospital. The other one was director of infectious disease at the same hospital at the same time. So part of the rebel in me was like, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what they told me not to do. <laughs> the other part was my father was a chiropractor and he was financially successful. He was socially successful. He was happy every day. He was home for dinner. He was watching my sporting events. I never had to worry that worry. It's the wrong word. I never had to wonder if dad was going to be there. He was always around. Mom was always around. It was, we were a family growing up. I had that good fortune and I know that these other guys weren't able to do that. So part of it was like, wait a minute, you're disparaging my father and you don't live the life I want to live, despite the fact that you have this prestigious education and prestigious position. So I think I'll go be a chiropractor. Thanks a lot. I think that's an interesting insight. I know when I taught at a previous school, I helped advise a student and uh, looked at his medical school application. Um, Mom and dad were doctors, brothers were doctors, aunts and uncles were doctors. And I remember this kid who was 18 years old, like a young adult, not a kid, but 
after getting into medical school and looking at things, he decided that he wanted to go to dental school for a reason very similar to yours. He saw the, I remember him sitting in my office and telling me he saw the, what his mother and father did and what his uncles did and what his brother did. He said, I want to have a life and I want to be able to have uh, time to spend with my kids if I ever have kids. So I think that's something that a lot of people, when they think about what they're going to do for a career, they fail to look at big pictures. Like, you know, it's not just your career, it's the quality of life overall. Mm -hmm. I also think that one of the things that people fail to do is look at, and I was too young. I wouldn't have known anything about this at the time. You look at the careers that people have and the way that they live their lives. And the mistake that you make is that's the life I'm going to live in that career. When in fact, those are those people's choices that led them to that. You don't have to be the director of infectious disease at a prestigious hospital in order to be successful. You can have a private clinic. You can make one-tenth of the money if it's enough money for you. You get to set what your life looks like. And that's something that I learned well, well into my clinical years. And I know I've had the good fortune on moving to live and also my other podcast, Fit Lab Pittsburgh, to interview a number of physicians who have made the choice not to be part of, for lack of a better term, a big conglomerate. They work, uh, you know, in small practices into a, a man. They've said, you know, I made this choice because I wanted to be able to care for patients and I didn't want to be tied up with all of the red tape and the difficulties that happen when you're part of a large hospital or large conglomerate. Yeah, it's you think you're working for yourself, but the reality is, or even for the hospital, but you're not. You're working for the insurance companies. You're, you're literally charging what they tell you to charge, accepting what they're willing to pay, and stopping when they tell you that you've run out of care. What's that all about? I'm not interested in that. So you make the decision to go to Cairo school. Mm -hmm. And we talked a little bit before uh, recording, and maybe you can educate the listeners. You talked about straight chiropractors and bent chiropractors, I believe, are the two terms you Mixers. 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 Yeah. So a straight chiropractor is essentially somebody who believes in the power of the adjustment to be so profound that absolutely nothing else is necessary. They would probably tell me that that's not what they do. It's not what they believe. That's my interpretation of what they do and what they believe. Mixers are the chiropractors who will use other modalities, stim, ultrasound, heat, ice, compression. Um, some will get into exercise and some will delve into mindset. And I actually think that this is one of the biggest weaknesses of chiropractic as a profession in general. They don't have an identity. You know, it's, oh, you're a chiropractor, so you're going to adjust my neck. The best chiropractor I know, who I frankly believe to be the best healthcare practitioner for long-standing musculoskeletal pain in the world is a chiropractor who I graduated with who hasn't adjusted a patient in seven years. He's all soft tissue work on a level that, I mean, I'll shout him out. His name is Dr. Chris Steppi and he owns a clinic called Barefoot Rehab in Denville, New Jersey. The best doc I know. I've had him come out to my house, drive the hour and a half to treat me because I'm too lazy to go to him and I'd rather... <laughs> Bridge the gap. But so that being said, chiropractors don't have an identity. If somebody asked him, what's your license? And he'd say chiropractic. They would assume what he does and he would be, they would be so wrong. It's not even close. 
at least physical therapy, despite the fact that there's great ones and there's lesser value ones, um, at least people understand they're going to give you exercises. They're going to stretch you. Chiropractors, it's like, we're going to adjust you. And then a doc is like, no, I'm not, not going to do that. That's not how I practice chiropractic. I'm a traction doc. I'm a flexion extension doc. No identity. I think it's interesting you say that. I mentioned when we were chatting before recording, I see a chiropractor uh, every few weeks for basically to watch me move and tell me how I'm screwing up. Mm -hmm. Kind of acting as, as a coach for me and offering suggestions. And his uh, his message to me when I first met him, I interviewed for interviewed him for my podcast, but very similar to what you said. I mean, I still remember the first time he said, well, you know, you've got some range of motion limitations. He said, I could adjust you and we could probably get that pretty quickly. He said, but your muscles aren't ready for that. And you're going to have six weeks of a lot of pain and discomfort. He said, how about we take it slower and use exercise? And to date, it's been three years, you know, maybe it'll be every three or four weeks, maybe six weeks, I'll come in just to say, hey, watch me do this, this is bothering me, I have yet to be adjusted. And I don't look at him as a chiropractor, I look at him as a movement specialist or a bodywork guy, he is outstanding, like your colleague that you mentioned. Right. And now, so the question becomes, you know, the, the, the first knock on that from the general public is, oh, well, yeah, sure, you need to see him for the rest of your life. Yeah, I also need to exercise and brush my teeth for the rest of my life. So do me a favor, jump off that horse. The other thing is, um, where is the gap now? Where is the line where he goes from doing things that a really good fitness professional could do to delving into things that only a doctor can do? And does that line matter? How do we decide who people should go and see? I think that that's one of the big issues that plagues our healthcare system, or I should say our sick care system today. I think it's interesting you say that. We've had some great conversations and we've talked kind of along those lines. And I know one of the things he said, he said, you know, if I had a very high level athlete, he said, I can coach them. I can improve if they're an Olympic lifter. I can work with them. I have the knowledge. He said, but that's not where my passion is. That's not what I want to do. He said, I want to get people out of pain. So as you said, Dr. Pastuch, they can take ownership of themselves. And I'm better at dealing with those people than taking the smaller groups of people. So I think both of you are kind of saying the same thing, but to some extent in, in a, and I'm saying this in a positive way, there's a stigma for people to say that because they're saying, well, you know, you're, you're not supporting the medical system. And I think we can both agree the current medical system as it exists doesn't work very well. And I think you hit it really well. It treats people that are sick rather than people that are well. Yeah. When I say sick, I don't even mean like the cold, the flu, cancer, AIDS. I'm talking about not well. My shoulder hurts. Okay, that, that's the sick I'm talking about. So we're in a, I don't know when this is going to air, but we're in an interesting time right now where we're having a lot of, you know, primary debates for the Democratic National Party and the Republicans who are looking to run against Donald Trump are talking about what's important to them. And one of the big, big, big issues is healthcare. And they keep talking about how the rising cost of healthcare, the doctor's not making enough money and we're paying too much money Who's getting rich? It's the insurance companies. We should cut them, blah, 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 blah. Then they talk about the deficit and they talk about the profits. And I'm like, you realize if we took all of the money away from the healthcare companies, we'd still be 97% from closing the gap. They're like a 3% problem. The problem that we face is that we don't educate people. We don't ask people to take personal responsibility over their problems. Hey, you're obese. 
I'm empathetic to the fact that you're obese. When I see somebody who is obese, I don't think, wow, that person doesn't know how to eat. I think, wow, that person could use some help. They don't feel awesome about themselves right now. They don't need statins unless if statins are going to save their life in the short term. They need to, all of them know that broccoli is better than cookies, (laughs) right? So what needs to be solved is what is the emotional trigger that is causing them to reach for cookies instead of broccoli? How do we fix that? That's how we fix the obesity epidemic. Not with, oh, gastric bypass surgery and so, I mean, like, it's fucking stupid. I'm curious of how much, and I know a lot of what you're saying I agree with, I'm curious how much of it is driven by the experiences you had as a child. You've, you described you had a variety of sports opportunities, and it sounds like you probably did a lot of pick up, you know, if, if you had one or two neighbors, well, you're at the basketball hoop, which is very similar to my, my life. Nowadays, we're at the point where with kids, it's like, you know, you're seven years old, you need to specialize in a sport. Or if you're not good enough, well, so what the actual pickup or going out and playing football t- with your friends. And usually it was tackle football, not touch football. Yeah. When I was when I was growing up. And at the times when you happened to break a bone, your parents' comment was, well, that was pretty stupid. We'll get it fixed and you can go back out and play. How much do you think uh, over the last, say, 15 years or so, because of this emphasis on youth sports versus playing, leads on to people who are adults who just don't understand how to move, they don't understand how to eat because they've never had to do that sort of thing? I'd like to take a step back and answer two questions that you asked in there at the same, uh, one at a time, if that's okay. Go for it. The first question is, um, did my youth influence the way I feel about these problems? My answer would be, of course it did, but not consciously. Because when I got to my, I ended up being a chiropractor in my father's clinic for like two years. The reason it lasted two years is I quickly realized that the way I viewed injury and mindset was radically different than the way that my father and my uncle who practiced there did also. And it came to a head one day when a representative from the company called Medifast came in. Are you familiar with Medifast? I believe. Nutrisystem, Nutrisystem. So one of them, it was, it's, it's one of those companies that sends you the meals in the mail. You don't even need to put them in the fridge because they're not food newsflash. Um, but you're going to, the weight's just going to fall off. And this guy is sitting there selling us on the idea that we should have it. And I just said to him straight up, I'm like, you're selling people poison. You're selling people mental poison. You're making them dependent on your crappy company. You're selling them stuff that's supposed to replace food that isn't food. And you don't want people to ever be in their ability to be without you. You're looking to hook people for the rest of their lives to buy stuff from you. He's like, no, that's not true. I lost 80 pounds on the system. And now all I do is eat the bars as meal replacements. I'm like, yeah, point in point in case in point, man, like this is, get out. This is not going to be in this clinic. And I didn't ask my dad or my uncle if that was okay before I did it. They were okay with me saying that we weren't going to have it, but they weren't okay quite with the brashness with which I did it. Um, But stuff like that is, 
it's the problem. People feel like we're supposed to be given the solution. Someone else is going to solve this for me. No, they're not. So the reason why I said it was influenced by my childhood is because I remember my childhood and it was great. I was a fortunate kid to grow up in an upper middle class neighborhood on Long Island with two parents, a sister, and a lot of love in my family. I had that good, that good fortune. And I had great friends. I played sports. I was active all the time. And I see now as an adult, the way the kids are coming up. And I also understand that like it was bad for Elvis to shake his hips in the fifties. You know, so I'm not, I'm not catastrophizing anything that's going on. But my daughter goes to school, preschool, she's four. I have a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a nine-month-old. And my four-year-old is going to be in kindergarten next year. And once she goes into the public school system, they have phys ed once every six days because they get structured recess on the other days. And that's how the district passes off that it's okay. They get their school lunch from the lowest bidder, Oscar Mayer this, Nabisco that. It's crap. So now we're teaching our kids what's more important than movement? What's more important than play? What's more important than free time and and individual thought and creativity? Well, math, science, history, they're important. But do, do you know where those came from as being so embedded in the curriculum? Do you know? Go ahead and tell our listeners. Harvard back in the late 1800s, wanted to skew who was going to be able to apply to attend. So they started putting subject matters that were requisites, prerequisites for coming to Harvard as a student into their application process, knowing what type of school districts offered these types of classes. And in order to get kids ready for those classes, the elementary schools had to start to teach them the basic fundamental skills to be ready for what they would learn in high school. And in order for other schools to keep up with what was going on, they had to do the same thing. And now we have this hodgepodge of kids on an assembly line following a bell like everybody's going to work in a Ford motor plant. It's insanity. Except instead because that's of, what Harvard said we needed to do. Instead of the motor, the uh, motor plant, it's everybody's going to go to college, forgetting that not everybody necessarily either wants to go to college or needs to go to college. Oh, forget about it. It's <laughs> that's yeah, that's a whole other discussion. That's a whole other discussion. But 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 the, the the reason why I brought up my daughter's situation is because I'm going to change it. I've already had meetings with the assistant superintendent. I'm having a meeting with the superintendent to let them know that, look, my daughter's four. I have another one who's two, another one who's nine months. I think we can work this out so that we don't have to have 17 years of really not liking each other. I need to start saving the blog posts and web pages that I read, but I remember reading an article within the last couple of days about a, uh, a teacher who was a, a longtime teacher. And when they moved up into administration, their principal said, you know, you ought to see what the students in high school do. So what they did for, uh, I think, three or four days each for a 10th grader and for a 12th grader, they shadowed a student. And their comment was, I never realized how much time I made my students sit and be motionless and not be active. That's a great idea that I'm going to write down. Because here's the thing, right? Most of the people who've complained about this have complained that the school isn't doing enough to foster healthy habits. 
but no one's coming with a solution because people aren't asking what the problem is. People aren't asking, why are you electing to do this? They assume that there's a financial end to it. There is, but at the same time, they have to pay a teacher during the time that they're not at phys ed. So they're still paying a teacher with the food is strictly financial. But so, so what is motivating this and what is the problem? Let's understand the problem better together and then we can come up with a solution. Instead of me saying, hey, you're a terrible person making my kids sit all day, what has led us to thinking it's a good idea to make the kids sit all day? Got it, let's uncover that. I remember back my fourth grade teacher, uh, I was always a problem child, quote unquote, because I was bored until I got to third grade and had a uh, male teacher who basically didn't put up with my crap. And mm-hmm. then in fourth grade, I had a, a, a lady who was a teacher. And when you would do multiplication table quizzes and spelling tests and things like that, she had a football or a baseball and she would throw it to different students, kind of a secretariat method of, uh, of teaching. But you also got that movement because you would catch the ball, throw the ball. I don't know if it would be allowed now, but I remember you know, nobody really dreaded multiplication quizzes or spelling quizzes or studying because it's like, oh, we get to play because we get to throw the ball. Yeah, my wife is a special ed teacher in a high school. When you, like she got her classroom decorated to, to make it feel welcoming. It's not just like, oh, you know, paper hanging on clotheslines. Like it's a, she, she spent a few hundred bucks to decorate the room to have it look nice. She plays music when the kids walk into the class and she's done things like brought stationary bikes into the class for kids who feel like they need to move and they're stuck. She has standing desks. She lets kids get up and walk around the room. She's like, I don't care. Walk around the room if you need. Hey, there's a cell phone corner in the back corner. If you feel compelled to check your cell phone during class, go to the back corner and check your cell phone during class. You have, you have one minute, right? And what, what she finds is that kids check their cell phone less because it's not the forbidden fruit. The other thing about that is we have so many kids now who are being told they have ADHD, right? Oh, this kid's ADD. Get him on medication. No, you sit for eight hours straight. Pay attention. No talking. Take notes. You need to medicate my ass too. I know my dad has joked before, probably since I've reached adulthood, he said, you know, if you were growing up now, they would try to put you on Ritalin because they would say you had ADHD, whereas it wasn't you had ADHD, you were usually bored or tired of sitting. Yeah. Then when I was in, okay, was it? I think it was middle school. I think it was middle school. Might've been sixth grade, whatever it was, doesn't matter. Um, I used to get in trouble all the time for misbehaving in class. But what happened is our teachers would give us dittos, the the worksheets. And everyone got the same amount of time to complete the worksheets. And when you're done, you're supposed to sit there quietly. I never, ever, 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 ever cared what my grades were. Ever. Like back from first grade, didn't care. I just wanted to make sure I got through to the next grade. And so I would answer the question questions as quickly as I possibly could, get done with the ditto, and then I'm bored. And the teachers would tell my parents, like, oh, you know, he's disruptive in class. Um, what's going on? And I would say, look, I've, I've told them I finished the work and then I'm bored. Oh, okay. That's easy. And they gave me more work. Like, I don't want more work. Let me leave. So when I got to chiropractic school, I wrote for a magazine as a student, like a student work thing. 
I forget what they call that, but study work study work study program. And they're like, we're going to pay you $16 an hour to write for this article, for this publication. I said, I don't want $16 an hour. They said, why not? I said, because if I can get 50 hours of work done in four hours, I still want to get paid for 50 hours of work. And they're like, well, we don't have any other way to pay you. I said, well, how are you tracking how many hours I work for? He said, you're going to tell us. I said, what's the most hours you're willing to pay someone to write an article? 20. I said, cool. <laughs> Every article was 20 hours. Like if you're willing to pay someone 320 bucks for an article, pony up. You're almost, pe- they're almost trying to penalize you for being more productive. Oh, but, but how many jobs are like that? How many places that you, that you hear of are hiring and paying you an hourly rate? Nobody, nobody in my company works for an hourly rate. Nobody. They all get paid for the job. We're talking with Sean Pastucci. He is a chiropractor who is the founder of Active Life. He's been describing his path to getting to where he is today. I'm curious, you were describing a few minutes ago how you told an individual who was trying to sell uh, Medifast or Nutrisystem, something like that. I was trying manufactured food to, for the rest of your life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you basically, maybe your presentation needed a little work according to your dad and your uncle, but the, the message was correct. Was that the impetus for you to say, you know, I need to do more than just seeing patients? Because as we were chatting before, uh, before we started recording, I mentioned that one of the ideas for this came from a quote from Dr. Stuart McGill, or actually I'm paraphrasing, where I heard him say, some of the people doing the best stuff you never hear about because they just do the things. So you could have done that. You could have been a very successful chiropractor, making a big uh, in, inroads in your community, be very well, very well known within your community, but nobody outside would know it. What was it that made you think, I can do more than this, or I want to do more than this? There's something I'd like to say before I get to that. Okay. And that is that if you're out there listening to this and you think you're great and you're doing this better than anybody else and nobody's heard of you because you just do your thing, you're selfish. You're doing it. And I get it. It's okay. You're doing it for yourself. Own that though. Because if you're so great, it's your responsibility to share it with the world. That's my belief. Right? It's, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about how great I am or how great you are or your technique being better. We can all get from each other. And if you hoard it or just don't want to spend the energy to figure out how to get it out to the world, you're selfish. I don't mind saying that publicly. Now, what drove me to doing more than just seeing patients was that I was seeing patients in my father's clinic and I enjoyed it. But over and over and over again, I was seeing the wrong kind of patient for me. Someone who got into a car accident and was, you know, had a lawsuit going. Somebody who uh, has back pain and has had it for 30 years and they don't eat a healthy diet, they don't exercise. Somebody who works a sedentary job and just wanted me to rub on their back and take their pain away. And I wasn't into that. So I started seeing patients at CrossFit Garden City which is a CrossFit gym that had just opened in like 2008, 2009? No, 2009. And I started there in 2010. But I started seeing patients there on the side for cash. And they would get better faster because I would tell them, I think you should do this, 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 and this. And they're like, okay. And they would go do it. 
I was a personal trainer previous to that. So I was always against CrossFit because it was too haphazard, too varied, too nonsensical. But I was drawn to it because I'm like, wait a minute. It's attracting a type of person who I'm not um, accustomed to being around. And I'm really not that fit. I thought I was, but I'm not. So I ended up opening my own CrossFit gym and my own clinic and seeing patients out of the clinic within the CrossFit gym. And it was great. And, but you know, you do that for six years, seven years, and you hear, well, how much is it going to cost and how long am I going to be here for? Enough times that you're like, oh, this sucks. And Ben, when I tell you, we had patients who flew in for evaluations from Spain, from Brazil, from the Cayman Islands, from Florida, from Nevada, from Canada, from California, to our little clinic in Island Park, New York, to get evaluated in, in our systems. And what happened was they would leave. I'm like, well, what am I going to do when this person leaves? How are we going to help them when they leave? And we came up with a system in, in large part due to things I learned from Shirley Sarman, things I learned from Stu McGill, things I learned from my father, things I learned from Dr. Bill Brady, who's the owner of Integrative Diagnosis, things I learned from Kelly Sturett, things I learned from my friend Corey Duval at Stay Active Clinic in Asheville, North Carolina. All of these things that we learned, we put together and built a system that allowed people to work with us from anywhere in the world. And it was successful over and over and over and over and over again at solving problems for people. And after a while, I just became tired of marketing to my local area and dealing with people coming in when they were upset and leaving as soon as they were happy. And I'm like, I'm dealing with unhappy people all the time. And once we get to the good stuff, they're gone. It would be like dating somebody until they're ready to have sex with you and then breaking up with them every single time or then breaking up with you. That sucks. I know you and I were chatting before we started recording. I mentioned I've had the opportunity to hear Dr. Shirley Sarman a couple of times. And I know mm -hmm. she believes that, I mean, she's very pro physical therapist, but she believes that somebody should have an evaluation from a physical therapist for wellness every year. It sounds like maybe your thought process is very similar. Somebody should have somebody and throw out the technical certification, maybe, maybe a coach or an expert where they see periodically just to assess how they're moving to give them tips to correct problems they may be having or am I overstating what you No, you're you're right. And another thing that Shirley Sarman would would say, maybe not publicly, unless she has already, because I know she believes this, because I know people who've graduated from her school, who are fellows at her school, who will say this who I won't name, who would say, You don't need to go to a physical therapist two or three times a week. You need to go to your physical therapist once every two to four weeks to progress the things that you were previously doing. The reason why people come to the office two to three times a week is for patient compliance and payment compliance. You're never going to build a practice on patients who need to come once every two weeks or once a month. That's a problem, Ben. Um, I think it's interesting you say that, uh, that she would say that because I know one of the things I said to her after she, I had the opportunity for her to evaluate my back in front of the course, I said, you know, I'm not a physical therapist. She says, that's okay. I'll talk to you anyways. But mm -hmm. I also said, you know, the information that you're giving 
should be for anybody who's involved in the movement field. This, the things that she was saying, even though it w- would pertain to anybody who's working with athletes or people who want to move. Well, and it is. Go buy movement, uh, diagnosis and treatment of movement impairment syndromes. It's available. You can get it on Amazon. There you go. <laughs> so, I mean, all of this stuff is public access. And this is what we were talking about before the show. Who is a physical therapist? Who is a chiropractor? Who is a personal trainer? What is their scope? It needs to be redefined. I think we need to get rid of physical therapists altogether. And we need to get rid of chiropractors altogether. And we need to re-educate the entire population and call them movement specialists. And there needs to be a very, very clear line in which it's no longer, um, it's no longer within the scope of a fitness professional to serve this person. It is now in the scope of a movement professional to serve this person. And call it whatever you want. Like movement, yeah, whatever. Movement professional, chirotherapist. I don't, I, don't, I don't care what you call it. But for us, we have very, very clear guidelines for when our coaches, who, by the way, are physical therapists and are chiropractors and are trainers, for when they're not allowed to help somebody online in our company because it falls outside the scope of what a coach should be able to do. And we don't function as a medical service. If everybody had that ingrained, physical therapists and chiropractors could charge exponentially more money, help their clients in exponentially less time, make more money in less time, give better service. Coaches and fitness professionals could make more money in less time, give better service. The end user would be happy. We wouldn't have this major medical deficit. We'd have a system that worked, but everyone's too scared that there's not enough patients and clients in the world to service. I know I've used this quote before. If you're the brightest person in the room, you're, you're in the wrong room. And along those same lines, I know from talking to our, both of us are friends with Eric Malzone, who has a, a couple of podcasts that we'll link to in the show notes. But Eric and I have both been amazed that the people that you would expect to be least likely to give you information are those people who are the big names and who are very active. And it sounds like with, from what you're doing with, uh, with active life, you've identified that, you know, there's this clear cut lines of who's a trainer, who's a coach, who's a chiro, who's a physical therapist that don't really work. And you're trying not really outside the lines, but in an atraditional way or atypical way of saying, you know, we can change this and make this better with the ultimate goal, making people happier and healthier. Yeah. And, and that was influenced by Stu McGill. I'll give him a ton of credit here. I remember um, Christmas Eve, like 2008, I was still a student and I sent Stu McGill an email because I saw something in his book that I didn't agree with. And I sent him an email saying, hey, I'm a chiropractic student. I understand it's Christmas Eve. You might not get back to me. I don't agree with this thing. And I think it could be because I don't understand what you're saying. Would you mind explaining this concept to me better? And forgive me, I don't remember exactly what it was. I believe it had something to do with um, the saturation, the, the, the saturation of muscle fibers with blood in a bird dog only being valuable for like eight or nine seconds. And after that, it's wasted time. It was something along those lines. And he wrote back to me on Christmas morning. Now, at the time, I was just reading a book my, told, my friend told me to read. I didn't know Stu McGill was Stu McGill. When I found out afterwards, people were like, Stu McGill wrote you back? I'm like, yeah. 
I can't believe you wrote you back. I'm like, I can't believe you didn't email him already if you thought this guy was so important. So when I get emails from people, I respond to all of them, all of them. DMs, I respond to all of them. Facebook messages, respond to all of them. WhatsApp, I respond to everything because I think it's my duty to do so. And the thing that I'm finding myself responding to the most now is, do you mind if we get a little bit controversial? Go for it. Okay. Um, The problem is money. The problem is not access to knowledge or access to the application thereof. It's money. So what happens is the best personal trainers in the world aren't expressing their professionalism because they don't know how to get paid to do it. The best doctors in the world aren't pursuing improvement or expressing their professionalism because they don't know how to get paid to do it. So what I'm starting to understand, and I feel like we've kind of decoded something very important here, is I can talk until I'm blue in the face about the way I think it is best to help somebody move better, feel better, all these things. We have something called our immersion course where we teach coaches how to do exactly that. No one cared until we put a, you will make your money back from this course before this course is over or I will cut you a check for the difference. Now it sells out all the time. And it's kind of like the, the sugar with the medicine of I, in order to make this money back, you have to do what we tell you to do when we tell you to do it, how we tell you to do it, or the guarantee is gone. That doesn't mean technically perfectly. It means the timing of and all that kind of stuff. And if they do that, they're going to help people get out of pain without going to the doctor or missing their workouts. So I get what I want. They get what they want. And we are building a generation of coaches and chiros and physical therapists are taking this course now too, which is awesome. We're building a generation of health and fitness professionals who are learning how to do things in a more progressive way because it's tied to teaching them how to make more money. And I'm totally cool with that. At the end of the day, I don't think that's controversial. I'm, I'm reminded I had the opportunity many, many years ago to go to a workshop put up put on by a running club on active isolated stretching with Aaron Mattis. I took a workshop with Aaron too. And I was so interested in it. I contacted him. This was back before email. So I'm aging myself. Mm-hmm. And I wrote him, I actually found his clinic number and left a message and he called me back and asked if I could come down and observe in his clinic for three or four days. That's and, I awesome. remember, and I remember taking vacation days and now I don't use everything that he had. And there are some things maybe I don't agree with or didn't agree with. But it was something that, you know, I was just amazed that somebody would open up his clinic and let me follow him around for three or four days. And people are going, well, how much did you pay? It's like, doesn't really matter. The opportunity to, just like with podcasting and talking to you, the opportunity to talk one-on-one with somebody rather than listening to it is just priceless. Well, Ben, there's, there's, there's a few things you said there that are important. The first one is, if you learned one thing from Aaron while you were there, and I, learned, one, I learned multiple things. Right, but, but let's say you went and you only learned one thing. And that one it. thing could only make you $1,000 a year. That's it. That's all it could make you. It would be worth $5,000, $10,000 for you to go mm-hmm. because you're going to make that $1,000 every year for the rest of your life. You're just stacking skills now. The other thing is um, the podcast idea. 
right? I'm not suggesting everybody out there starts a podcast for this reason, but it's an important thing to consider. If you sent me an email and said, hey, can I get an hour and a half of your time to ask you some questions to better my life? I probably would have said no. No, I definitely would have said no. I would have said, yes, you can come to New York, spend a day with me. Sure, you can do that. But if you send me an email, hey, I'd love to have you on my podcast, share your stuff with the world. I didn't ask how many downloads you have. doesn't matter. It's practice for me to present this information. It's hopeful that it will land on somebody's ears who is going to change. It's you're providing me with a give instead of just asking me for a take. And I think one of the things I've, t- I've talked about this with uh, a number of people that I'm in a podcast mastermind group, I don't care if anybody never knows who I am. I want them to know who the guests that I get on Moving to Live are because the whole idea is to give knowledge that other people might not otherwise have access to. So if you're listening to this podcast, you know, they're going to hear about, you know, Dr. Sean Pastuch because that's information that people who are involved in, for lack of a better term, movement field, they need to hear something that maybe shakes them up or maybe says, oh, I agree with that. I want to learn more. Well, I think that's a mistake, Ben. I'll tell you why. Okay. You wouldn't have a podcast if you didn't think that there was a story to be told that wasn't already being told, right? I would agree, yes. So then what that means is that there are professionals out there who are delivering information and who are being interviewed by countless people the same way over and over and over and over again. And if you send them an email and you're like, hi, my name is Ben. I'm a podcast host for Move to Live, and I'd love to have you on the show. They might be like, kick rocks, Ben. But if you sent an email saying, hi, my name is Timothy Ferris. I have a million downloads. Everybody in the world knows who I am, and I'd love to have you on my show. You get the chance to ask this, the questions that the world needs to hear this professional answer. Well, I, want so, the, I don't want them necessarily to know who I am. I want them to know what moving to live is. Okay. So maybe, maybe we're saying the same thing in, in different ways. They need to know the show. They, I think they need to know you too, but I get, I get what you're saying. We're talking with uh, Dr. Sean Pastuch. I am curious about your thoughts on this. Uh, we both know, having both worked in the personal training field, I still do a little bit of it because I want to be a practitioner in addition to teaching at the university setting. You and I, in the next 10 minutes, can get online and probably get three or four or more different personal training certifications or wellness certifications. So I, I love what you're doing as far as saying, you know, we need to make these viable professions, whether we change the names or not, and my courses can help do this. Somebody's listening to this. Maybe that we've got a student listening to this or somebody who's looking to make a career change. How do you figure out, how do you get in the field? And from your experience and your recommendations, what do you need to do for education, whether it's official education from universities and colleges, or what else do you do? I love this question, Ben. First thing I would say is this. I believe having certifications is profoundly useless. So when I say that, there, there's a level of contradiction there because we have certifications from active life. It's important that people know we have certifications because we know you're looking for certifications. We only got our certifications, continuing education units from AFAA, um, NASM, NSCA, and CrossFit because we know you want them. 
I don't give a shit. So it's the information that's important. Now, when it comes to what school do you go to, if you want to be a healthcare professional, a doctor, you have to go to college. Then you have to go to medical school. If you want to be a fitness professional, a personal trainer, there's a benefit to going to college and getting an exercise science degree. I would double major in marketing. And what I mean by that is when you graduate, you have all the knowledge in the world. You just don't know how to let anybody know you have it so they can buy it from you. This issue plagues doctors, coaches, lawyers, accountants, everybody. They think the reason why they can't get the next client is because they don't have the credibility or the education or the certifications or the letters or the external validation, this and that from the world. Because they look on Instagram and they see, oh, Dr. Sean's a chiropractor, a personal trainer. He has all these certifications. That must be how he blew up. No. No, but I don't even remember what certifications I have. Seriously, I don't. The last time I took my CrossFit level one, I took the test for time. I was like, it's CrossFit, right? Let's see how fast I can finish this test. I was done in, for those of you who've taken the CrossFit level one, six minutes, 47 seconds to finish the test. I raised my hand. The proctor came over and said, can it, can answer any questions? I'm like, cool, I'm done. <laughs> what, what do I do? And they're like, you're done? Like, yeah. Like, you sure you don't want to look it over? I'm like, I've owned a gym for six years. I'm a doctor. I was a personal trainer first. If I failed, uh, you can fucking take me out back and shoot me. I don't care if I got an A or not. And, and they made me sit in the lobby while everybody else finished the test. But, but the point I'm making is like, it, it doesn't matter. Nobody asks. Nobody cares. So once you feel like you can help a certain group of people, here's how I always recommend education should go. You feel like you can help a certain group of people with the knowledge you now have. Help that group of people until you're bored of helping them, frustrated that you can't help them more deeply, or want to be able to help a more diverse group of people. Then get a skill to help that more diverse group of people or to help your existing group more deeply saturate your ability to help them, meaning get your schedule absolutely full. Get your bank account absolutely full so that you're making these decisions out of want and not what you perceive as need. So once you know how to help people, you might be in a situation where you're like, man, I'm the, I know I'm the best personal trainer on the block. I know I'm the best chiropractor in the town. How come no one's coming to see me? It must be because I don't know ART. Bullshit. Go take a marketing and sales course. So, like, you'll be in a room surrounded by traveling salesmen and by telemarketers and by car salesmen and all these different people, and you'll have skills that other doctors in your town don't have, and you will stand out. And then people will come to you for your skills that you can now communicate. When you get tired of seeing the people you can help, go get new skills to help new people and then learn how to market and sell that. That's how I teach people to stack skills. So our courses are built that way. We build our courses so we teach you value. Then we teach you how to market that value. Then we teach you how to sell to the market that's now coming to you. 
Then we teach you to develop somebody else to do the thing that you're probably now bored doing. Then we teach you the next thing. That's, that's, that's how I recommend people get education. I'm reminded of my dad who went to law school when he was in his early 70s because he was interested in doing more. Yeah, good for him. Well, my, I'm curious about this. What you're defining is uh, something that describes literally a lifetime of education, which I'm a, I'm a big fan of. But you're going to get a lot of people who are listening to this. And I think this probably builds into why there's such a problem in the medical fitness movement, whatever the field you want to call it. Somebody's going to say, okay, I've done it. I've got all my education. Now it's time to sit back. Because there's something with what you're describing that even if you're confident is a little bit scary. You're putting yourself out there saying, okay, I don't know about this. I'm going to go and I'm going to get more education. And I know I don't know how many people have told me, it's like, well, I'm too old to do this or I can't do this. And to me, I always say, well, my dad went to law school. And I think one of the things we need to approach or, or talk about a little bit is how do you get through to somebody who maybe needs more confidence to say, you know what, you can do this, even though you may feel like you don't know anything initially. I'll tell you how I do it for the trainers we work with. I'll give away some of the secret sauce. What I have them do they've enrolled in the course. So now they're like, all right, I'm going to learn all the big important skills from Dr. Sean. And now this happens in the pre-course. What we ask them to do is make a list of 10 people in your gym today. They're there right now who you know have problems that frustrate them in the gym that you already have the skills to help them with. Make that list. Write down the person's name, the thing that you think frustrates them, how you think that thing makes them feel. And then under that, I want you to write how you know you could fix it with them. Make a list of 10 people. Every day that you go to the gym, I want you to read that list. And the moment that you feel compelled to talk to those people, I want you to reach back out and I'm going to teach you how to approach them so that they're going to say yes. Or they're going to say no, and you're never going to feel pushy or sleazy. Once they do that, they're like, oh my God, there's like 20 more. There's so many people I can help. I never thought of it this way. Like, yeah, you don't need to go get the next education until you've saturated that list. And people constantly come to me in the pre-course. They're like, all right, things are going really well. What's next? I'm like, build another list of 10. Again, yeah, keep going until you literally can't build the list. Then we will build the next skill and go serve the next group. But until then, you have no, there's no reason to do that. Hey, can you teach me how to hit a curveball? No, you can't hit off the tee. And there may be, I would imagine, some people who stick at one level because that's something that they really enjoy that specific group or clientele of people. Totally. Somebody needs to help people get faster. Someone needs to help guys get jacked and women get lean or women get jacked and guys get lean, whatever floats your boat. Someone has to do that. It's not me. That bores me, but it doesn't bore everybody and there's nothing wrong with doing it. And by the way, people are willing to pay for that. So go let them pay you for it. We're talking with Dr. Sean Pastuch of Active Life. I'm curious, from everything you've been describing, you've been describing, 
I don't mean this in a negative way. This is a positive way, a two-headed monster. There's the knowledge about movement, but also there's the ability to market. And this yeah. is a little bit different from many other, I mean, there are these sleazy fitness things, you know, we can get you 10 new clients j just by paying $69.95 for this course. Where did you get the information or the knowledge to help educate uh, movement professionals about the marketing aspect? That's a great question. And it started when I had a coach tell me, if you want to be better at business, you need to become a better person. I was like, what are you talking about? I'm a great person. I'm awesome. He's like, no, you're not. So, okay. And, and what that sent me down was this path of like, wow, I really don't understand how to communicate to people who are not like me. You know the golden rule, treat people the way you want to be treated? You know that rule? I, I do know that rule. Terrible rule. Terrible rule. I promise you, most people do not want to be treated the way that I do. So it leads me to treating people the way I want to be treated and a lot of people not liking me. That doesn't work. That said, once you understand that you don't know something, you realize, oh, wow, there's a blind spot that I had. I thought I knew that. I don't know that. I wonder what else I don't know. It starts to lead you down the path of, let me figure it out. So I started by just doing it. by just like putting myself out there, thinking about how to get attention. And that worked minimally. And then I said, okay, well, I now have the skills to do this much. Where could I acquire skills to do that much? Let me start reading books. That's free. I have no money. Let me start doing something inexpensive. Going to the library, taking out books. Asking people to borrow books that they've read that they like. Asking for books for Christmas, birthdays, Hanukkah, all that, right? So I started reading books. Cool. That got me so far. What else can I do? How can I speed this up? Started listening to podcasts with a pad and pen. Watching YouTube videos with a pad and pen. That got me so far. Then I was like, okay, well, I need to really learn how to do this. Took a course. Cool. That got me even further. Took another course. Hired another coach. Went to another workshop. Went to a mastermind. Started following people on Instagram in an intentional way where I didn't care what they were saying. I cared how they said it. And do things like other people were doing things. And eventually, I led to a place where I understand how to market to to do a million dollars a month. I need to learn how to market to do 10 now. That's, that's how I did it. And, and, and if I can add to that one thing, Ben, my friend Chris, who I was talking about, who is the best um, musculoskeletal specialist that I know, he always used to tell me, like he would go back and back and back and back for more and more and more and more and more. And, more. and that's why he's so great. And I always tell him, cool, now make a living. <laughs> and he has been, right? He has been. Um, but I always told him, I'm like, you want to be the top 0.1% in the world. I just want to be top five. Like, I'm good enough. I got it. Like, this is, this is good enough to help 95 out of 100 patients who walk into my clinic. I'll send the other five your way. I know one of the things that you can read in the various social media posts, which 
sometimes do more damage than good is the importance of a, and I'm putting this in air quotes, work-life balance. From what you're describing, it's not necessarily a work-life balance. It's having the curiosity and also the realization that, you know, there's probably always something I can do work-related, but do things that are going to help me in what I want to do in my career. Never do something for the sake of doing it unless if you know you're doing it for the sake of doing it. So what I mean by that is if you're going to take a course, you should be able to explain to somebody before you take the course what problem you have in your business, what that course is going to do to solve it, how that course is going to solve it, how you know, and then it makes sense for you to take the course. You talked about work-life balance and that it seems like I'm not really into work-life balance. And that's, that's true in the sense that most people know it, but it's false in the sense that I'm not into it. I think most people, look, and I made a post about this a while back, if you check out my Dr. Sean Pestuch Instagram account. I think that most people look at work-life balance like the, like the scale of justice. If there's 10 pounds on the left and 10 pounds on the right, then work and life are balanced right? That's true if the axis is right in the middle, if the fulcrum is right in the middle of the bar. But if I enjoy what I do so much that it actually takes energy away from me when I don't do it enough, then the axis being in the middle causes my work-life balance to be out of balance and the scale tips. So I don't view the fulcrum as being right down the middle. I view the fulcrum as being wherever it needs to be in order to keep the amount of energy that you derive from work balanced with the amount of energy that you derive from life. I love my wife. I love my kids. I would kill an innocent person if I had to for them. After about an hour, I've had enough. It's reality. So, like, where's my work-life balance? I should be 50-50? Get out of here with that noise. Traditionalists would say 50-50. I know I think you and I are thinking in a similar realm. I go to the park most days with my dogs and run or hike. And I will confess that some of my best ideas for work-life come during that time, whereas theoretically it's recreational time. And I would also confess to when I was doing it this morning, I was thinking of what questions I would ask you, um, what I wanted to get out of the interview. And I can say that uh, my expectations were exceeded. So Dr. Pastuch, I want to thank you for giving some of your time to not only talk to Moving to Live, but also share your knowledge and your expertise with our listeners. It was my pleasure. I love doing this kind of stuff. I hope that people took something from it. And I hope that if nothing else, what they took from it is you don't need anybody else's validation. You're good enough now to help a bunch of people. So help them. And if you're frustrated with that number of people, learn how to help more. But help them first. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at 
gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.